Now that Cindy and I are empty nesters, we've got a little more time on our hands, and uh, Cindy doesn't like to call it empty nesters. She likes to call it, uh, I can't remember what she likes to call it, new season starting or something like that, but anyway. So we're watching uh, the Hobbit trilogy, and we're watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and we've watched these before uh, back in the day uh, with our kids when they were younger, but um, we didn't really get it. And so I thought, you know what, now that we've got all this extra time, why don't we, why don't we watch it together? Uh, I didn't get the names the first time, and I didn't quite get the, 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 the drama unfolding. So we're watching it, and I'm always struck by Gollum. He's under the influence of a gravity, of a dark, deceitful desire. And everyone's vulnerable, Right? And it's such a vivid picture of what the Bible describes as the desires of the flesh. You will recall over the last couple of weeks that Pastor Dale has been preaching through Galatians chapter 5. And the desires of the flesh produce the works of the flesh. That's where the action is. In the heart where deceitful desires master. There's a darkness there. There's a deceitfulness there. And today I want to consider two primal desires of the flesh that if they master me, if they master you, they will create all kinds of trouble. And I want us to look at the Apostle Paul because he speaks to these two primal desires deceitful desires. One commentator puts it, this is his finest hour. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we get a very unique window into what makes Paul tick. Let's consider it together. Paul writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit working together with your word would make the truth shine, that it would pierce, that it would disturb the comfortable and also comfort the disturbed. We pray that 
you would help us open the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know the hope to which we have been called in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. First of all, I want us to consider the life of a man set free. Secondly, the heart of a man set free. And finally, the call from this man set free. First of all, the life of a man set free. The Apostle Paul escapes two very common problems. And by the way, that's when I have opportunity, I'm seeking to, uh, to, to show us how Scripture maps onto the problems that we face. It's all about our problems in living. It's wise. It pierces. It, it helps us understand life from God's point of view, and it speaks in order to transform us. And here we see the life of a man set free. Paul escaping two very common problems. First of all, consider what he's facing. In its context, the Corinthians are passing judgment on Paul. They are rejecting his ministry and they are calling into question his authority. Kids, it's like the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon or seeking to help somebody, and the Corinthians are just holding up signs. I'll give him a four. I don't know. He's, he's not like anything like Apollos. I'll give, him a, I'll give him a two. They're passing judgment. You ever had that experience? But I want you to notice not only what Paul is facing, but what Paul is doing, how he's living in response to what he's facing. Notice verse 3. We'll start in the middle. Paul says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He's putting his finger on a very common problem in living. The biblical category is the fear of man. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. You may know it by its more common terms that the world uses. Peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency. That is to say, building your identity based on the opinions of other people. But we want to learn to use biblical categories because biblical categories relate us properly to God. The fear of man lays a snare. That's the problem. But Paul is speaking of an uncommon freedom. He's saying, as it were, I don't live before your eyes. Yes, your opinion of me is a small thing. It hurts when you pass judgment, when you reject me. It's, it's a thing, and it's a hurtful thing. But it's a very small thing. It's not an ultimate controlling thing. Now, I don't know about you, but this is extremely attractive to me. I read this text and I say to myself, how can you say this, Paul? How can you live like this? How can you not be controlled by their evaluation of you? When I was 16, my first job 
was as a disc jockey for WCHL Radio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I remember sitting there in the control room, and back then, kids, we had what were called turntables, okay, record players. And here was the microphone, and there's the clock, and here's the control board, and here are the two turntables, and here are all the records. But back in my boss's office, there was what was called an air check machine. It was a tape recorder, and every time you would turn on the microphone, it would record everything that you were saying until you turned off the microphone, and then it would stop. It was sort of a way of collecting everything that you said on the air. Well, I'm sad to say, embarrassed to say, ashamed to say, I learned a little trick. I learned how to manipulate the tape so that whenever I said something really stupid, I learned how to rewind the tape reset it so that the next time I said something, it would record over what I had just said. Now, why would I cover up the fear of man? His eyes counted. His opinion was weighty. Can you identify with the struggle? It's been a struggle all my life. Several years ago, uh, Cindy and I, we were talking about this, and, and uh, she helped me understand that it's as though my heart spins a web of delusion. I, I view people as if each person's opinion mattered equally, and this is what she told me. Greg, it's like the child's storybook, the little mouse, the red ripe strawberry, and the big hungry bear. In your eyes, everyone is an equally sized giant that can hurt you, but that's not living in reality. Now, she was also quick to say, as only Cindy can do when she raises her eyebrow and looks at me and says, and besides, you need to care more about what I think than what the churches think. Okay. <laughs> It's my struggle. Maybe it's your struggle. Are you overcommitted? Are you unable to say no? Are you afraid of being exposed as an imposter? Do you avoid people? Are you often second-guessing your decisions? Are you afraid of making mistakes? Do you get easily embarrassed? Are you guilty of telling little white lies? Anybody feeling exempt from the fear of man that lays a snare? Well, how about this? I think I may have told you this. Years ago, a survey was done uh, surveying people's greatest fears, and I think uh, third or fourth on the list was dying, but first on the list was public speaking. I guess people would rather die than get up and speak in front of other people. It's a common problem. What about evangelism? Sharing your faith with your friends or your co-worker. It's a real problem that trips us up and traps us. And consider the twisted make-believe courtroom that we create when we live before the eyes of other people. People set the standard. 
and we seek to live up to their standard. And when we succeed, we feel great, but when we fail, we feel lousy. And when you fail to measure up, what do you do? You play the Savior. You seek to atone for breaking their laws by trying harder. Living before their eyes, we might call it a worship disorder. Living as if other people's judgment has ultimate worth. And it's a miserable slavery, but not for Paul. Not for Paul. He's escaped the fear of man. How can this be? Well, there's a second escape. Consider what Paul is facing as he looks into the rearview mirror. We learn about his resume in Philippians chapter 3. You remember, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul writes, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. And so he's tempted to live before his own eyes. But notice how he's living. Notice what he says in verse 3. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. You see, on the one hand, there's the problem of the fear of man. On the other hand, there's the problem of the pride of man. Living before my eyes. That's the problem of perfectionism. But here is an uncommon freedom. Paul says, as it were, I do not live before my eyes. Yes, my conscience is clear, but but my conscience does not get final say. And I say, this is so attractive. Paul, how can you live like that? How can you not be controlled by your own evaluation of you? Years ago, I decided this is, this is a struggle. I, I want to I trust God to, to help me understand what's going on in my own struggle with this and to help me find the way of escape. So let me read to you a little bit from one of the papers in some journaling that I had uh, written from years ago. What was I facing? This was my situation. I had to write a paper. How did I respond to my situation? Well, I cleared my schedule. I determined and tried to write a rough draft, but to no avail. Not satisfied with what I had written, I started over with a blank sheet of paper, then another. I turned on to work on the computer. I wrote. I backed up to rewrite. I did so again and again and again and again. I stared at the monitor, evaluating what I had just written. I thought to myself, I can't live with this. I lost sense of time. I cut, I pasted, I cut and pasted again and again and again. I turned off the monitor thinking, maybe I can push forward if I just look at the keyboard instead. I gave it a practice run. And here's what I wrote in my journal. I'm trying to write a rough draft and I am scared to death. I'm launching into new territory and it feels so unnatural. I feel so vulnerable. I'm trying to suspend judgment in my own eyes. I feel like screaming. What if it's not right? What if it falls short? 
Oh, Lord, help me to move forward and right, right, right without slowing down to judge, judge, judge. I chickened out. I turned the monitor back on. I fell back into the same old, same old, halting between alternative words, phrases, and combinations. I began to feel paralyzed, tangled up in frustration. I got angry at myself. I could not focus. I started getting into fear and doubt. Lord, I'm not going to make it. I don't understand. I really believe you've called me to this. Why, then, am I unable to move forward? The result of full day's work and less than a page, less than a page of progress because of the pride of man I live before my eyes and when Paul speaks of his freedom I do not even judge myself I lean forward and I say how can this be can you relate some of you maybe lots of you in different ways struggle because you live before your own eyes and that's what keeps you moving forward that's what keeps you from making progress maybe it's in a relationship maybe it's in having someone over for dinner it's got to be right in my own eyes but it won't and so I don't extend the invitation it plays out in all kinds of ways it's a struggle and consider the twisted make-believe courtroom that we live in when we live before our eyes we set the standard and we seek to live up to our standard and when we measure up we feel great that's our pride succeeding but when we fall short we feel lousy and that's our pride failing and then when we don't measure up we play the Savior and we atone for breaking our own laws by, by, by just getting down on ourselves. Yea, even hurting ourselves. And the Bible speaks exactly to our struggle. Both the fear of man and the pride of man are two sides of the same coin. It's all about trusting man instead of trusting the Lord. And so there's trouble on the left, living before their eyes, and there's trouble on the right, living before my eyes, but there's a third way. And that's point number two. Notice the heart of a man set free. It is, Paul writes, verse 3, and four, it is the Lord who judges me. It's the voice of faith. And by the way, this is very important, especially here in West Michigan, so I'm told. Paul is not speaking about the judgment of all people. He's speaking about the judgment of believers. In its context, he's speaking about the last day when the works of God's people will be revealed with fire. So he's not talking about the judgment of all people, but the judgment of believers. And he's not talking about the judgment regarding eternal salvation. He's talking about the judgment of our earthly service. It is the Lord who judges me. 
It's not the fear of man. It's not the pride of man. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the voice of faith. I live before His eyes. And it's very simple, and it's profoundly liberating. And Paul's confession of faith gives window to his heart. His heart is always interpreting. His heart is always worshiping. Notice first, he's an interpreter. And notice how his renewed heart sees clearly. He clearly understands his identity. Verse 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us. He's learned to see from God's point of view. This is how one should regard us. And he uses two phrases from the household world in Paul's day. As a servant of Christ, that speaks of his humble position, but also as a steward of the mysteries of God, that speaks to his honored position. One who manages the affairs of his master. What affairs? The mysteries of God. The gospel revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation in him. Paul understands who he is. And not only does he understand his identity, he also understands his responsibility. Verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy faithful, worthy of the trust that has been placed in his care, and faithful to promoting the gospel in word and deed. Now, to be sure, Paul is applying this to himself specifically as an apostle in terms of his ministry of preaching Christ. But the same principle applies to each one of us here in Christ. All Christians are servants of Christ. And in a very real way, all of us are stewards of the Gospel entrusted to us. And so the same faithfulness that applies to Paul is the same faithfulness that applies to us. But Paul is not only an interpreter, he not only sees clearly, he's also a worshiper. Notice how his heart weighs things truly. It is the Lord who judges me. There's something about that that he loves. He finds it to be his precious. We read about Paul's testimony in his letter to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, He is my Master. And I am His servant. And my life is all about not living before their eyes, not living before my eyes, but living before His eyes. 
His assessment of me weighs more to me than your assessment of me and my assessment of me. His judgment is the only one that counts. And we say, Paul, how do we do it? How do we get there? You ever have a cup of hot tea? You take the tea bag and you let it steep in the hot water. You don't just dip it out very quickly, do you? No influence. But when you let the tea bag steep, the water comes under the influence of the tea. It is the Lord who judges me. That's the tea bag of truth that steeps and dwells in Paul richly. It's the fear of the Lord. He's coming under the influence of God's Word and Spirit. And it changes the way he sees. And it changes what he loves. The Spirit of God working together with the Word of God to change the heart before God. Is this why I struggle so much with living before your eyes or my eyes? I think so. But when this Word of Christ dwells in us richly, it is transformative. Well, we've considered the life of a man set free. We've probed into the heart of a man set free. But notice finally the call from a man set free. Therefore, verse 4 and 5 signals application. Paul is on a rescue mission. He's speaking the truth in love in order to rescue us from the folly of living before the eyes of others and before the eyes of ourselves and to deliver us into the gracious wisdom of living before God's eyes. To escape the make-believe courtroom and to enter into the real courtroom where there's freedom. And Paul appeals to you and me in two ways. First of all, he gives us a command in verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. That is, before the Lord comes. It's a call that points us forward to the time when, when the Lord will come and His servants will have their day in court. And so the call prohibits anyone from usurping the Lord's bench by pronouncing premature judgment on His servants. And so it's a call that invites us to ask searching questions. Am I exalting myself by insisting that someone live before my eyes? And for my approval? Am I exalting others by living before their eyes and living for their approval? Am I exalting myself by living before my eyes and for my approval? Does the shoe fit? The apostle looks us in the eye and speaks the truth in love, saying, Wake up. Wake up and stop it. Own up 
and grieve it and shift weight. Turn from trusting your faults and futile judges and turn and wait upon the true and better judge. It's a command. Secondly, He gives us a reason to support His command. Jesus will bring to light, verse 5, things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. But wait a minute. Those of you who were listening really closely might be saying, that's not what I expected to hear. I grew up in a Reformed, conservative, Bible-believing, but no room for joy church. And I was expecting Paul to say, then each one will receive his hostile rebuke from God. But that's not what he says. He says, then each one will receive his praise from God. That's what the word literally means. Commendation. How can this be? In the Gospel, the eyes of Jesus will seek and find and show the motives and the actions of all of us His servants. But in the Gospel, the mercy of Jesus has covered up and washed away all that He finds that is filthy. And in the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is working to change all that is in me and all that is in you into a new creation. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And almost 400 years ago, some very wise, spirit-filled pastor theologians gathered in the Westminster Assembly. And they were reflecting on this passage along with many others. And these are the things that they wrote in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. A Christian's ability to do good works is not at all from themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ to work in them both the willing, the wanting, and the doing. And as they are good, these good works proceed from the Holy Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, here comes the Gospel, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Donald Carson, 
biblical theologian writes, is this not wonderful? The king of the universe who has endured our endless rebellion and sought us out at the cost of his son's death climaxes our redemption by commending us. Us in whom the Spirit has produced a life worth commending. Do you see the freedom that Paul enjoys and the same freedom into which he calls us? He doesn't live before their eyes. He doesn't live before his eyes. He lives before God's eyes. He knows that only God sees clearly and weighs things rightly. And only God will disclose the true worth of our service. So, into God's hands, he commits his work to be judged. And unto the next, next task he goes, aiming to be faithful to his master. The Bible is exactly about what I struggle with and what you struggle with. And it brings good news to bear in order that we might change. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us window into the life of your servant, the Apostle Paul. And we we so want to uh, be set free by the Spirit of Christ working as worked in Him. I'm certain that I speak for so many little boys and girls, teenagers especially, or should I say, yes, even us adults, when we're honest, we just get tripped up and trapped with the fear of man as well as the pride of man. And we pray that you would untangle, that you would put to death the deceitful desires of the flesh and that you would raise to life the desires of the Spirit that we might be mastered by Him and that we might walk out a life that brings you glory as well as our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close by singing together, May the Mind of Christ.
the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. And may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.